Breaking news. Today we're going to address a listener request to discuss the Redonda Vought case. This is a huge headlining case, and people probably just know this as the case of the nurse from Vanderbilt, Gita. Yeah, and the ripple effects from this case, I think, are going to be really far-reaching. But just for those who don't know the details of what happened, let's catch them up as best we can. We had to glean a lot of this from the news. It's hard to know exactly what happened, but this is pretty much what we can glean from the newspapers. So, Gita, Redonda Vaught, RN, was a nurse who had worked at Vanderbilt for the last two years. Now, I will tell you, all of this is public information, so there's no HIPAA disclaimers or anything like that. And this is just like Google it on the news. You can pull all this stuff up. And she was caring for a patient by the name of Charlene Murphy, who was admitted for head bleed. This was on December 24th, 2017. So two days later, there was an order for a repeat scan to see if there was resolution or improvement, et cetera, et cetera. Now, as it turns out, Murphy had claustrophobia, and there was an order for PRN versed. And just a little bit more of a framework is that Vaught was the float, or what they called the help all nurse in the neuro ICU. And she was also in the process of training another nurse. So Vaught and the other nurse, her trainee, took the patient to radiology for the CT scan. So once they were in radiology, it seems like Charlene Murphy did need the versed for anxiety. So Vaught, the nurse, goes to the Pixis in radiology and tries to call up the Versed. Now, when she types in the name, she puts in VE, so she didn't use the generic name Midazolam. She looked for Versed, so she types in VE and doesn't get anything. And Epic apparently had not been interfacing with the pharmacy correctly in the weeks before this, but I think that had been resolved by the time this actually happened, but Murphy didn't really know that. But they had been overriding things fairly frequently. So when she tries to get the medicine out of the Pyxis, doesn't get it when she types in VE, she performs an override function, which gives her more drugs to choose from. And now she types in VE and a drawer pops open. But unfortunately, the drug in that drawer was not Versed, it was Vecuronium. Oh boy. Yeah. Terrible mistake to make, this paralytic. Mm. And in the process, she ignored several pop-up warnings that came up about it being a paralytic, and she just kind of rode through those. But also, and I'm not a pharmacist, but the vecuronium is a powder, whereas Versed is a liquid. And there was a warning on the vial prior to reconstitution. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Like when you look at the vial on the top of it, it says warning, paralyzing agent. And, you know, she actually had to look at the instructions to reconstitute the vecuronium. She had to look at the mixing instructions and the name of the drug is right there. So she didn't see any of these warning signs. And then to make things even worse, there was no bracelet scanner available to her in radiology. So on the floor, she might have blown through all of these warnings, except that then when she scanned the medication in the patient's bracelet, there should have been some kind of warning or there might have been a second nurse required to okay everything. Like There should have been some other safeguard here, but she was in an unfamiliar department working with an unfamiliar Pixis, and maybe she just thought like, I don't know, in radiology, maybe the Versed comes as a powder. I don't know. I can't explain what she was thinking, but she unfortunately administered the Vecuronium to Charlene Murphy, left her waiting in radiology for her scan, where Charlene Murphy stops breathing and subsequently dies. Oh boy. It's horrible. It's horrible to contemplate the magnitude of this error, right? This patient died a terrible death alone. It's horrible. And actually, afterwards, Nurse Vaught 
registered, the gravity of these actions is completely distraught and, as she should have, discloses her error to everybody. She tells everybody what happened. She's completely overwhelmed with grief. And she readily admits, like, I think I killed this patient. These are how the mistakes were made, and this is what happened. So here's what happens next, is that Vanderbilt obviously has information about the error, but they do not report the error to the state, and it's not documented anywhere as an actual error. And Vanderbilt later fires Nurse Vaught. Now, in early 2018, and we remember that this happened in December of 2017, Vanderbilt negotiated an out-of-court settlement with a family with a non-disclosure agreement. So we do not know the amount of the settlement, but we do know that the family had to sign a non-disclosure agreement, which basically means that they can't talk about anything related to this with anybody. You know, we don't know their discussions with Vanderbilt. We don't know the amount of the settlement. We don't know if Vanderbilt actually admitted guilt, any of this type of stuff. So everything seems to be resolved-ish. I'm sure Vanderbilt (laughs) had sort of felt that same sort of way. However, about six months later, in October of 2018, a, quote, anonymous tipster reports the medication error to the Department of Health. Shortly after, this is on October 23rd, the state of Tennessee Department of Health decides not to pursue disciplinary action, and they send a letter to Vaught dismissing the complaint. However, one month later, CMS pays a surprise visit to Vanderbilt, and in response to the anonymous complaint, they find out the truth about this mistake. And here's where things get tough. Yeah, so pretty soon after that, Nurse Vaught is arraigned in a criminal case. So how exactly it went from the civil courts and CMS to this winding up with Renanavat on trial in a criminal case for negligent homicide is not very clear. But Nurse Vaught is now defending herself in a criminal case as of February 2019. In September of 2019, the Tennessee Department of Health reversed their decision about her license and suspended her nursing license. And then she was supposed to go on trial, but it was delayed by COVID and ultimately just went on trial last month as of the time of this recording in March 2022. It was a four-day trial, and she was found guilty of gross neglect of an impaired adult and negligent homicide. And she's being sentenced in May. As I said, we're recording this in April, so we don't know if she's actually going to go to prison. So, Gita, you had the opportunity to speak with medical malpractice attorney, defense attorney, Mark Calvert, and our listeners will know him well. We've had Mark on MRAP many times in the past, has an incredible amount of expertise about this. And this is, I'm sure, like a swerve off the road type of conversation that we're having here, because this is super scary to all of us. And look, we have medical malpractice insurance, because if we make an error, for example, we don't ask a chest pain patient if it's exertional, and it turns out to be ACS, and they come back three days later and have a heart attack and die, super tragic, without a doubt. But no one's going to jail for that, right? That's why in the course of our careers of 150 to 175,000 patients that we'll each be seeing, right, there will be some cases we maybe would have handled better than others. I mean, hopefully all of our cases will have the vigilance that we could reserve for if we're only seeing one patient per shift, right? 
But there are certain times that there could be some medical errors, or at least a perception of a medical error that gets made. And that's called medical malpractice, and that's why we have insurance. This is a totally different story. And I just want to summarize what you told us. At the trial, March 2022, four days, gross neglect of an impaired adult and negligent homicide. Yeah, so I spoke with Mark Calvert about this, and this was his initial sentiment about the case. It is a tragedy. There's a lot of moving parts here, and I've been giving it some fairly deep thought because I wanted to be able to have an intelligent conversation with you and, and offer some, some heartfelt and experienced uh, opinions. I'd like to do a little bit of a disclaimer. I hate to Monday morning quarterback both healthcare and legal effort. And so, you know, obviously the facts that I know are essentially what you've related and, and I've done a little bit of reading and, and looked at some articles. I've watched some YouTube videos. I watched the at least part of the testimony of the uh, prosecution's expert against Ms. Vaught. I watched a, a couple of short uh, interviews with Ms. Vaught to try to get a little bit more information. So my first disclaimer is I don't think I have all of the details and know all of the different angles and, and layers. Next, I would say this opens up a lot of sensitive areas. And, and I read some of the feedback on the YouTube video I watched where it was a, a nurse that was kind of dissecting it. And, and there was just a lot of uh, outcry from healthcare providers, nurses in particular, about what a slippery slope this is and, and the danger and the pressure that it puts on, on healthcare providers. And I, I can see that. It's a hell of a mess in a, in a very tough situation. Um, and I can, I can look at it, I think, from both sides and also offer some legal thoughts. We asked Attorney Calvert if he thinks that this will start happening more, that cases may be tried more often in criminal court. Yeah, here's what he had to say about that. I don't think it's going to be, okay, now it's open season on healthcare providers. Will it open up a little bit of a door in that regard? You might see a little bit more of it. He then goes on to say that the so-called never events, like wrong-sided surgeries or sponges left in patients, might start to creep more into the criminal realm. So I still have a question. How does this case rise to the level of criminal negligence? I mean, criminal negligence, you know, looking at it in one way, hey, honest mistake. Both medicines start with <laughs> initials VE. On the other hand, this had a big warning on it and it needed to be reconstituted. And obviously it was an error. And there are medications that can kill patients by having them become apneic because of their paralytic effects, right? So what exactly is criminal negligence? Yeah, I had that same question because I feel like we have a system to deal with these types of errors, and it's the civil litigation system. And even in situations of gross negligence, sometimes they can levy punitive damages. There has been a system for this in the past. So how did this wind up in the criminal sector? This is what Attorney Calvert had to say about the Tennessee statute for criminal negligence. And then he goes on to talk about what makes this such a hard case to defend. I think that this is a very rare situation. And, and one of the things I think we need to take a, a little bit of a deeper dive on is what needs to be proven. Here is the standard. I looked it up for Tennessee. Here's the Tennessee statute. So criminally negligent homicide occurs when a person's criminally negligent conduct results in another person's death. 
So what's criminally negligent conduct? And this is where we kind of get into the meat of it. It's when the person, so Nurse Vaught or someone in her situation, ought to be aware of a substantial and unjustifiable risk that the result will occur, meaning death, based on their actions, and must be of such a nature and degree that the failure to perceive it constitutes a gross deviation from the standard of care that an ordinary person, which in the situation would be a nurse, would exercise under all the circumstances as viewed from the accused person's standpoint. So when I have looked at some of the different things, there are some things that have jumped out where you just, you kind of scratch your head a little bit. And, and I'll just bullet point a few. And this makes it a hard case to defend in, in any court. But first of all, she told investigators that she was distracted by an unrelated conversation with a colleague when she grabbed the wrong drug from the medication cabinet. She overrode safeguards that came up, as you mentioned. She didn't coordinate with the hospital pharmacy. I guess there were four warnings or pop-ups that came when she was withdrawing the medication from the cabinet. This idea of the medication being a powder when Versed is a liquid, she admitted that she found that puzzling. She hadn't given VEC before, so she has to reconstitute it. And then at the top, they have a picture of this in the article that I have uh, printed out, but they have on the top of the lid where I guess she's going to be dealing with it, bold lettering on the medication bottle cap that says, warning, paralyzing agent. So what we have to do is take the legal template and basically reduce it to this. Would a reasonable nurse have acted this way? Or would this be a gross deviation from what a, an ordinary nurse of reasonable prudence would have done? And this is where the rubber kind of meets the road because people who are listening to this, whether it's nurses or doctors, I think we have to say, would someone kind of an ordinary solid, you know, doing their job, not the best, not the worst, would they have run through all of these different stop signs? I don't know, Mike. What do you think? Would any of us run through all of these stop signs on a bad day? You know, on the surface of it, and with us being part of that sort of tribe of healthcare providers, doctors, nurses, clinicians, PAs, NPs, right? We want to give each one of the other of us the benefit of the doubt, right? Because I want to get past the hindsight is twenty twenty part. And I'm just thinking about my day. You know, like I arrive at work, I start seeing patients, I get some histories, I order some tests, I send some patients home, I admit some other patients, right? So where would that happen that an error would be so egregious as that? And even just giving the total benefit of the doubt, say, for example, I give a verbal order to someone and say, I'd like vecuronium when I mean to say, I'd like Versed, right? So I'm just thinking, you know, Certainly, that wouldn't be criminal negligence, saying the wrong medication. But there are so many steps that we need to go through to get to that point where not only do we go get that medication and reconstitute that medicine and draw it up a needle and then actually inject that medicine to a non monitored patient, to me, it just feels hopefully a little safer when I think of how scary this is to think of the opportunities that any of us have to actually intentionally or by the act of extreme, extreme sloppiness to kill a patient, it just seems like that 
doesn't really happen that often or really ever on my shift. I mean, you know, what, what, what do you think? Like, I'm, I'm saying like, you intimate the esophagus. That's not criminal negligence. I mean, hopefully it doesn't happen, you know, too often or, or ever, right? I hope not. Or, you know, you're doing a central line and you give the patient a pneumothorax and then you don't get a chest x-ray. Well, you know, that's bad. But again, I feel like that's really on the medical malpractice side of things. I mean, to get to the level of criminal negligence, that's a pretty high bar. It's a very high bar. I think this particular case is a lightning strike kind of case where just all of these holes in the safety nets just kind of lined up. But I can, I will say in Nurse Vought's defense that I can see, I can actually see how this error happened because in, in some small part, at least because I know that, you know, on a shift, you talk about the things you do on a shift every day. How many times do you dismiss a pop-up? You know, you get a warning for, you know, some medication being dangerous in pregnancy, and this patient is a 75-year-old woman, or a man even, right? You just dismiss that pop-up, right? Or they come in, the medication interaction they're talking about is something that you know to be something completely meaningless and harmless. You can't do your work without dismissing these pop-ups. And so I think there's a real problem that we do need to talk about, which is alarm fatigue, and the degree to which, I mean, there is research that suggests that these technologies, ordering systems and things like that can actually be error inducing mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. And so analyzing that, being aware of that, and then figuring out how to be attentive in those times when, you know, what we're doing is really rote and overriding these warnings can just be rote. So how do we stay, keep the presence of mind that when an alarm is going off and that things start to add up, how do we sort of stop and check ourselves and make sure that we're not doing something harmful? Well, it's funny because with the alarms, like you have the alarm, and then you have the alarm, <laughs> you know, and like we have this person like watching all the monitors and like, you know, they're seeing stuff and PVCs and different things all the time, of course, right? And then sometimes they see something like really serious, like asystole or VTAC, which usually turns out to be them like adjusting the bed mm -hmm. sheets or something, right? But again, that's another example of this type of fatigue that can happen, this artifact that can happen. But of course, that's part of our job, right, is to know these sort of things. And, and one of the real big themes of our discussion here is to break down this story, which on the surface is very scary, but hopefully yours and I and the wisdom that Mark Calvert has can be a little bit reassuring to people that yes, we can continue to practice good medicine, continue to practice patient-centric medicine, continue to you know balance that triumvirate of patient safety, patient satisfaction, and patient throughput, right? We can continue to do that without the threat that we would somehow be accused of negligent homicide, because this is an incredibly rare occurrence. Yeah. And you know what? The way I think that this, I have my interpretation of why this wound up in the criminal courts, and some of this I think is just very unique to this particular case, mm -hmm. is that it's heartbreaking that Radonovat disclosed her heir to the hospital but Vanderbilt did not then do what they should have done with that information. Now, if anybody's listening and works at Vanderbilt and has other information about this, this is just what was reported in the papers. But someone complained because Vanderbilt didn't really own up to what had happened. So this anonymous tipster complains. And then by the time CMS gets involved, Vanderbilt has already settled the case. There's nowhere else to go, right? They've already settled it. It's been tried in the civil courts. Vanderbilt now is done. So there's nothing else to do because you can't try a corporation criminally, but there is a person 
that you could try criminally, and that is nurse fought. Yeah, which is really a lot of the shame of this whole thing because we get it there is an error and you know an egregious error also. But she did do what she was supposed to do, which is report it to the hospital system. And it's not really Nurse Vaught's fault that the system, i.e. the Vanderbilt system, did not go at least wherever CMS thought that they should go with this. And Mark had some similar sentiments. You know, reading between the lines here, it looks like Vanderbilt did a little bit of a sneaky, and I'm not trying to be holier than thou, but they tried to you know, navigate through the raindrops and a whistleblower caught them. So it makes you wonder, actually, how often these types of things happen, <laughs> where really the nurse voicing and speaking up, you know, good for the nurse, but it doesn't change the systemic problem because the institutions are dancing around it. So Mike, what do you think about the effect this verdict might have on our ability to make systemic changes? I mean, a huge pillar of what we call safety culture is that people feel like they can disclose their errors and near misses to make the system safer without fear of being punished in an unfair way like this. Like that's what we should all be doing is disclosing when things go wrong so that we can make the system better. Well, my hope is that we continue to do that. And when I was the chair at Mount Carmel St. Anne's, we had, I wouldn't say many, but you know, certainly some of the RCA, the root cause analysis meetings, and we gathered everyone around with the goal to make things safer. Because look, you know, we live in a country of 300 plus or 400, whatever million people, right? And there's a lot of healthcare encounters. And at least from past reports, you know, to errors human, you know, 100,000 mistakes that are made that end up in bad outcomes every year, right? So we want this to continue. And that's another lesson I'd really like to make sure that we share with the listener, at least our thoughts, you and mine are on the same page with this, is that absolutely we need to continue to report and to continue to strive for that culture of safety by reporting potential errors. We do have a great deal of trust placed in us. It does matter that we take our time and do things right. But sometimes the system works against us in a hospital system. And, you know, there's probably not a day that you aren't dismissing pop-up warnings. And we all have alarm fatigue to some extent. But if there is a take-home message here, it's that if you're in an unfamiliar setting or something feels a bit off to you or just something doesn't quite add up, you have to stop, to stop what you're doing and just reassess. On a shift, you may see, you know, let's say you see 30 patients and, you know, you make 29 great saves and then there's one that you miss and you're a negligent doctor. I mean, it's just grossly unfair, but they're coming at you fast and furious and there's equipment issues and there's staffing issues. And I get that the setting is almost unworkable. It's gotten to almost an unworkable stage. I just know that individual healthcare providers have to take a moment. They have to figure out how to document charts appropriately without taking all the time in the world. They have to be focused and on their A game when they're, when they're clocked in. And, and I just, you know, I've dealt with a lot of healthcare providers who are regularly having problems, whether it's lawsuits or board issues. And I've dealt with others that rarely have problems. And what is the difference? And I think Certainly, um, there might be a little bit of a difference in skill, but mainly it's on attention, bedside manner, and just having that sixth sense. And like I say, I think 
Nurse Vaught was walking across a frozen lake. And when you start to hear some cracks and some of these things start to happen and then there's more cracks, you don't walk faster, you walk slower and maybe you stop and maybe you turn back and maybe you get some help. And I think some people who avoid these nightmares are better skilled at recognizing, hey, Houston, we might have a problem here and I need to slow down. I need to get some help. I need to retrace my steps here. Let me read this medication again. Let me go back to the ABCs of how to do this. And one other thing that Mark does say is that if he were defending the case, he would have wanted Nurse Vaught to take the stand if possible, to like really humanize her actions, show that she was a good person, show remorse, and really feels like that would have helped her case. So one other really big theme of our discussion here is to make sure that we all know, which I'm guessing is sort of like being beaten over the head with it by the time you've reached this point of the discussion, is for all of us to know that our malpractice coverage does not cover criminal defense. But the truth is, if this was egregious negligence and it was being tried in the civil courts, there could be punitive damages or gross negligence accusations, and most malpractice policies won't cover that either. So one thing we do know is we have to make sure that this never happens again. Yeah. I mean, of course, although potentially, right, of course, there, there's a lot of people being seen in the, in the country and in the world. But the take-home points that I would have for people would, first of all, to be reassured that this is extremely rare. And just like you said, Gita, is this is probably a location and event-specific type of occurrence. So hopefully that will reassure us that we are not really at risk of going to jail. The second thing is if we look at the number of physicians out there who have errors, almost none of them, obviously, are tried criminally. The third thing is to think about those differentiators. For example, medical malpractice, we use this sort of funny example of, you know, not asking about exertional chest pain, the patient has ACS and has a bad outcome. Well, again, that's medical malpractice. On the other hand, thinking about what are criminal acts, well, assaulting a patient. <laughs> Certainly don't want to do that. Changing the records, you know, committing fraud, for example, with billing or another type of fraud where you're trying to make extra money. And, you know, we've seen there's been criminal complaints against physicians who have been in pill mills. Now, obviously, that's not going to be us in emergency medicine who run a clinic in Appalachia and are prescribing a lot of <laughs> narcotics, right? It's not really an opportunity right. for us even to do it. But still, thinking about that type of thing. So, I mean, summarizing it, I don't, look, you know, don't, don't, don't engage in criminal behavior during your shift. Yes. Don't engage in criminal <laughs> behavior right? during your shift is a bad idea. It's an easy lesson for us, for us to take out. But I will say the case for me also is scary. I would not have thought, and I'd be interested in your, your thoughts, Kita, I would not have thought this would have gone to a criminal level. No, and I really think that a lot of that circumstance had to do with, there's a little political thing, I guess the DA is up for re-election, and I think a lot of it was that the case had already been settled in the civil courts, and yet there was this other now hue and cry about what had happened, and they needed somewhere to go. And so I, I think that this is still going to be a very, very rare event, hopefully made rarer by our attention now to situations in which you know, in, in fraught situations. I mean, we can never be perfect. And I, you know, we were making, you know, a couple of jokes there for a second, but I want to get back to the fact that, I, you know, this case is clearly a tragedy, first and foremost for this family who has to live with the knowledge that their beloved family member died a terrible death all alone. And it was preventable. And, you know, I've having heard Nurse Vaught, some recordings, I, I think that even without jail time, she 
is going to be living with the aftermath of this forever. But the way that this went down, just so much error upon error upon error, that is what the DA ultimately said was just too much, that an average nurse would not have let so many warnings go unheeded. And that is what Mark said made this so hard to defend. You know, healthcare providers have the beating heart in their hands. And so just the focus and the attention and the skill and the intolerance for air is, is there live and in color because you see such a dramatic effect of it not being handled just so. And that's hard. And it's one of the reasons I admire y'all so much is because you are in that arena. You know, and it's the great quote from Teddy Roosevelt, you know, the credit goes to the person who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred with sweat and blood and tears. And that's, I love defending y'all when I can get in there and say they gave it their best. In situations where they didn't and a catastrophe happened, it's, it's a challenge. So finally, I'd say we're never going to eliminate human error 100%. We can reduce it. That's our goal here right now is we can reduce it through education and practice and encouraging all of us to take our time and take care. But I think we also need to come together to develop better systems to help make us more error-proof. I think those are the big lessons to take away from this case. Gita, thank you so much for bringing this. I think just the act of talking it through and understanding more about it at least to me, is reassuring because just that snippet you see on the news is super scary, but understanding some of these subtleties that you brought out. And of course, the wisdom of Mark Calvert, all those things have been really helpful. So thanks so much for doing this. Yeah, thanks for taking on this tough topic with me, Mike. <laughs> 